0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar Energy, experts in solar energy management. Hello and uh, welcome to our weekly podcast, Energy Insiders. This is Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, joined, as usual, by David Leach from ITK. David, how are you this fine day?
1: Very well, thanks, Giles. And uh, again, welcome to our special guest this week.
0: And to our listeners, indeed. Look, our special guest this week is Keith Lovegrove from um, the chairman of OSTELLA, which is the Australian Solar Thermal Energy Association, and he's with IT Power. Keith, um, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks,
0: Joel. Hi, David. Hi. Yeah, look, um, Keith, we've got you on board because we've um, one of the biggest news of the past week was the um, announcement for the solar tower and storage project in Port Augusta and the long-awaited contract with South Australia. And it's great to have you on board to to talk about that and uh, and what we know of the contract and the details. But first, let's get into some of the other news of the week and run through that before we get stuck into solar thermal. David, um, I guess the big news is all about wind. We had two big uh, wind announcements. One, we had the um, PPA signed for Cooper's Gap. Once again, a very good price set, less than $60 a megawatt hour. Um, um, that's, a, that's going to be the first big wind farm in Queensland, and it's going to be closely followed by uh, Kennedy Wind Park, which is going to be built by Wind Lab which is building a smaller version mixture of wind, solar and battery storage um, up there in the Atherton Tablelands and wants to build a 1,200 megawatt facility um, as time goes by.
1: Yeah, so uh, Cooper's Gap is certainly interesting. Um, Once again, um, QIC and its partners have have been prepared to sell electricity uh, to AGL on only a five-year contract uh, at a price sub $60, so there's certainly a very low cost of capital for these established technologies it's interesting to note that wind lab will actually get 10, itself will get 10 million dollars because uh, wind lab which is just IPO that's initial public offering uh, this week with a market cap of about 50 million dollars. Most of its historic revenue has come from identifying these wind sites such as um, um, uh, Cooper's Gap such as the uh, Arafat one in Victoria. And a couple of other very good sites. Colgar
0: over in WA, I think.
1: That's right. And and so the technology that they have, which is a CSIRO technology for spatial mapping at very close proximities and identifying the wind speed, seems to have actually been very successful. So I'm quite hopeful that uh, Windlab, which is a small company, uh, can continue to grow.
0: Well, it's going to be interesting. Um, Hopefully, with Cooper's Gap and um, with Kennedy, it's going to provide a better output than MacArthur um, Wind Park, which has only been producing about 23% in the last year and has never actually gotten above 26%, despite the fact that its um, output was supposed to be a lot more than that.
1: Well, this is one of the things about capacity factors. It's a bit like uh, market shares. You know, if you add them up from all the various participants, they always come to over 100%. Uh, And and And... you know, capacity factors for wind generally tend to run at less than their advertised level uh, frankly a lot of the time. Uh, the, the, the Kennedy Energy Park is particularly interesting in the idea of combining wind and solar and a battery. and the wind uh, farm up there for stage one is 40 megawatts and the solar thing at 15 AC and then there's a two megawatt four megawatt hour battery. And if you look at it, the, the relative to the wind capacity, it'll probably produce a, a, about 60% capacity utilization by combining those three technologies, um, but mm-hmm. at, at, at a higher cost than just doing wind alone. I guess the other thing about the Cooper's Gap project was that the cost of wind farms now is down under, uh, at one point, uh, under two, about $1.9 million a megawatt. Uh, so that's come down about 20% from four or five years ago. Indeed, in fact, it's
0: probably beating solar right now. Um, Keith, what do you make of these? Um, um, solar was supposed to beat everything. Um, wind seems to have found an, um, an extra wind in its sails, if I might, and um, pushed its cost even lower.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose that's the nature of competition, isn't it? Um, my, my understanding of that Wind Lab project, it, it's got another interesting aspect to it as well, which is to do with not so much the capacity factor or the strength of the winds, but the timing of the winds. I think it's a uh, it's a wind resource that anti-correlates with the PV generation quite nicely. So it's not all just about capacity factor actually.
1: It, it isn't and increasingly we're going to see that and we'll discuss that a lot more. It's not about how much, uh, what it costs, it's uh, all the capacity factor. It's about what price you can get and, and when. and. and... That's, that's really the key to the project economics. Another thing uh, that was quite interesting this week, Giles, while, while you were swanning around Alice Springs, um, uh, was the Origin and AGL results. Well, AGL was last week, but a- AGL's um, gas project uh, importing project down in Victoria is starting to get some legs up. Uh, it looks like they're getting a lot closer to doing that. That project had 100 petajoules of gas, and whilst the economics of it in and of itself it, um, um, about 8 to $10 delivered gas price might not look that wonderful. Uh, the fact is it's going to provide a lot more gas competition to the local guys and, and, and free up more gas supply. I, I know there's very mixed views about gas, but uh, in the end, uh, taking the pressure off gas prices will, will help to move electricity prices down as well.
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting one. Um, people are sort of thinking, well, why are we having an import terminal when we've actually got a, you know, um, three of the largest um, export term- terminals in the world? But I guess that's just the, in- the, um, the reality of international trade, and um, Australia is not the only one to have an import terminal. I think some of the other big um, exporters um, also import the gas simply because sometimes you can buy it cheaper on the market than what you've actually contracted to sell overseas.
1: If you look at shipping costs to get gas from, say, the Northern Territory uh, or even from Queensland down to Victoria probably costs you over a dollar a gigajoule anyway, something like that. And the shipping cost for LNG is uh, only around a dollar a gigajoule, so pipelines are expensive too.
2: Yeah, but the absurdity of it is that you're paying you know, you're you're paying double effectively for the energy cost of liquefaction, which is quite considerable.
1: Yeah, that, that that is a nuisance. It would be cheaper to ship the raw gas down. I... Yeah.
0: Now, um, Keith, while we're on the subject of gas and before we go on to solar thermal, um, you'd obviously like to see some of these opportunities where some of the industries actually sort of take their mind off gas and sort of look at some of the other um, opportunities um, to either electrify their process or find um, other ways of generating heat and I guess we've seen that with that um, Nectar Farms project, which is going to use wind and battery storage and that actually electrify the whole process. But um, you did a report a couple of years ago, didn't you? Just looking at all those sort of replacement um, technologies for gas?
2: Yeah, we certainly did. I mean, it was almost as if we're about 12 months too soon because the report for Reno, which was looking at renewable alternatives for large gas users, was anticipating the gas price rises that were going to come with these export terminals. Um, now, now, that, now that it's well and truly upon us, we should probably relaunch that report because there is definitely a range of opportunities. So solar thermal heat, biomass heat, even um, low temperature geothermal is possible for those gas users.
0: Because um, well, uh, we're, we're just seeing some of the big consumers, they're still railing about the gas prices, they're still raising about electricity costs. And I think, David, you mentioned um, just before we came on air that BlueScope are having a big whinge about it all. Um, um, yeah, and this week with their, with their results
1: yeah yeah the blue scope share price is down 20 uh, percent uh, today it's still up 40 percent for the year but there'll be a lot, very a lot of unhappy investors there's a lot of things going on there the steel prices are a bit that they're expecting are a bit lower than what the investors were looking for but they were they were complaining bitterly about Australia's energy policy, their gas price being up a third and their electricity price up 90 percent I think over two years. I guess, to an extent, you know, they, they don't embrace renewable technology, uh, uh, they, they blame it, which of course is not the case, but, uh, and they don't think renewables are the answer, whereas of course we know they are the only answer in one, one way or another. Uh, and, and then they've had this strategy, as far as I can see, of trying to buy a lot of electricity at the spot market and getting caught, and this is the problem with big business that just don't uh, embrace the new reality and, and, and then sit around and complain mm. when things go wrong.
0: Keith, I mean, how do we get that message through? You've done these reports. So do business yeah. listen? Does business well, it's,
2: listen? It's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because a lot, of the, a lot of the noise coming from the big gas users, say, for process heat, is that they, they're really dreaming of the old days when gas was really, really cheap. And what we can say is, well, if you can get used to the fact that it's never going to be cheap again, then you should start looking at renewable solutions that become cost effective. But don't imagine that the renewables is going to take you back to a 2 or $3 a gigajoule world. It's not going to happen. That's, that's in the past.
0: Mm. Look, this seems like a good point then to get into the main to- topic of the day, which is um, solar thermal Um so last week the solar tower power plant was announced for Port Augusta, 150 megawatts is going to be a $650 million project, it's been long awaited, pushed for by the community in Port Augusta, they're absolutely delighted, a lot of people in the industry are very excited that we now will have dispatchable renewable energy into the system because this basically is not like a PV plant. It basically uses mirrors to deflect the sun onto a receiver, which then um, heats up molten salt, goes into a tank, heats water, creates steam and spins a turbine um, like um, some conventional plants do. Look, I guess the big issue is about the cost and the contract and things like that. And um, there's been a lot of questions about it. And um, we don't actually know all the details of this contract, but we've been starting to piece a little bit together um now the main figure is 75 dollars a megawatt hour is what the south australian government is going to be paying um, it is basically sourcing all of its power from this plant but not directly what we have learned is that um, because there's a big variability in price in south australia sometimes the um when there's a lot of wind produced and not much demand the cost is low so those opportunities south australian government will be buying from other sources on the market That means that Solar Reserve can then store some of its energy and sell into the peak um, times and get more money for its output because one thing that we can be sure of is that Solar Reserve cannot produce power at $75 a megawatt hour and it is probably, its cost is probably um, probably about 40 or 50% more above that but we don't actually know. David, what's your overall impression of this? I mean, you've got con- some concerns about the economics. Um, but, um, yeah, let's, 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 let's just go through that one first.
1: Well, let, let's start with the capacity factor. I, I might ask, uh, throw it to Keith and say, as um, um, Giles is saying, the net output is about 135 megawatts and the uh, notional capacity of the plant is 150. So that, that's 15 megawatts
2: used internally. Does that sound about right to you? No, I don't think that's what they're talking about. Um, There's a lot of intriguing little details with this announcement that aren't fully explained. What I understand is that it's it's a 150 megawatt net generator, but they intend to only run it at 135 megawatts when they run it. And it's worth pointing out, too, that in all the previous discussions up till now, it's been talked about as a 110 megawatt net plant. So clearly in the recent days of negotiations with South Australia, they've actually reconfigured it slightly to be more of a peaker in its operation.
0: And I think that's probably the key to actually making those two sums, the sums because um, obviously um, Aurora, as this plant is known, can't, um, can't generate electricity at $75 a megawatt hour. So it needs to sell as much as it can into those sort of high priced events. Um, Let, so it can deliver talk- that contract to South Australia at $75.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that. So if we say it's 135 megawatts and 650 cost, I know there's federal government funding and other things. That's about $5 million million a megawatt, I think. Now that compares and the capacity factor at 135 megawatts, I think we worked out, Giles, is about 42%. Which is just a little better than uh, a good wind farm, and a wind farm's capital cost is, you know, now less yeah, than but megawatts.
2: I, I got to pick you up on that. It's not about being better or worse. They've deliberately made a peaking plant. You, you could easily use this solar plant with that much storage and run it as a base load generator, as people talk about, and get its capacity factor up to eighty plus percent. But why would you? Because the market doesn't want that. It really wants peaking behaviour. So this is 42% capacity factor at will, at, at at you know concentrated on the evening peak. Oh
1: well, I'll agree with that. So we, we get to 495 gigawatt hours of output, and uh, I guess the point I would make is that if you look at 650 million of cost, if you were funding funding this as a, from private equity. Um, uh, you know, I calculate that you'd need about $130 nominal price per megawatt hour, or about $110, $120, $110 real price, that is, that goes up each year with inflation. Um, and so that's the price they have to get in okay. South Australia. Yeah. And whilst you can get that on, you can see how you could get that in the past, the question is, will you be able to get it for the next 25 years? Because... This won't be the only new plant to meet peak demand that's built in South Australia. We already saw, for instance, Pelican Point got some new, some more gas supplies last week, and and it's an existing plant. I mean, this is just the market calculations that you have to do.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree more or less with those numbers, David. In fact, you probably need to add on, on another $10 or so for O&M, maybe $20. Against that, if the federal government follows through with its 110 million dollar equity investment commitment that'll knock $20 back off again but as you say the 78 $75 is not cannot be the whole story Um, and really the issue is this project still has to reach financial closure so they need to find debt finance and equity investors to Provide the rest of the six fifty million after the federal government's one hundred and ten is in there, and those people traditionally, certainly the debt finance, they'll be looking for secure income, and clearly the state government contract is part of that. But we don't know the full story and how how they would um, get financial close from their investors. Certainly, and Keith, part- and,
1: and Keith, could I ask how do you see the what sort of technical, what sort of risks do you see in the projects? The revenue at least to $78 is guaranteed, yeah. but, but they need more than that. And we've got to factor in the RECs, assuming they can actually get it built in time to to, to qualify for those. I mean, can they get a How you know, is there any construction risk and, and is there any operating risk?
2: Well, if there's, leaving aside the market risk, and, and I, I, I doubt that you would go ahead with a project this big and this innovative, you know, on a merchant basis. I don't think, I I somehow doubt that many investors would go with that. Well, I don't think Um, it's going to be
0: fully merchant. I think it might just be partial moment, but as you say, say, designed for the peaks.
2: Yes, indeed. Um, But to go to the technical risk question, um, this is a fairly innovative approach. So what we know is that there's, There's one plant in Spain that's been running on this principle since 2013, so that's got a pretty good track record. We know that Solar Reserve have really just finished their Crescent Dunes plant, and like everything else in the world, it turns out to be harder than they thought, and they've had some downtime and so forth with a leaking salt tank, but we understand it to be generating online now and and meeting its design. Um, we also know that elsewhere in the world, there's a very similar plant being built in Morocco by a competing Spanish operation. We know that there's a very similar plant being built in Chile by Abengoa, another Spanish company. And interestingly, I've just come back from China and I saw a 10 megawatt molten salt tower plant running in the far west of China. And the same company over there is halfway through building a hundred megawatt plant as well. So it's not as if Australia is um, going it alone in this, but we we are certainly supporting what is the cutting edge of CSP. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of background noise there, I don't know who that is. <laughs>
1: Sorry, that's the Chinese government on the line. They want to know yeah, a bit
2: more. They want a clarification. <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Apologies to our listeners, but um, you were saying, Keith, about this Chinese plant. So Australia's not alone, is it?
2: Australia is not alone, um, but we are definitely contributing to the, the industry best practice in CSP. Keep in mind that CSP as a general industry, particularly with the trough plants, has plants that have been running continuously for over 30 years. So as an industry category, it's pretty secure. It's these power plants with salt, which are widely recognized as being currently best practice, that are, you know, we're, we're helping to move the industry forward globally, and that's a good thing. Now... So-
0: Okay. No, no. Go ahead. Um, You know, I I was kind of interested. I mean, um, interested, like you know, putting aside the economics, because there's there's parts of it we don't know, and as you say, they're not going to get. And if if they get financed, then presumably it's because um, they can see the accounts and are satisfied with what the returns are anticipated to be. How is it actually going to change Australia's energy market? Because we've just had a whole bunch of wind and solar. Um, putting it now, which is sort of variable and non-dispatchable, the fact that we've now got this dispatchable renewable energy power, Keith, how is this going to sort of you know change the future of renewables in this country?
2: Well, I think once we get it built and running, it'll have an incredible psychological impact because those of us who know this industry and have been visiting plants overseas for many years keep wondering why people in Australia don't take it seriously, and it seems as if You know, if it's not in our country and our politicians can't cut the ribbon and our journalists can't take their own photos, there's a sort of denial (laughs) of its reality. So if we can just get one up running well, then I think it'll be a sort of, you know, there'll be no more of this politician standing up and saying, oh, that solar is always variable or or you can't do baseload. I mean, it'll be undeniable then. So I think that, that effect will be big. Bear in mind that the state government in South Australia, they're making a virtue of this particular project as a thing to help bring down peak prices, to, to get these very high price events um, reduced, so to speak. And it should do that because it's, it's a significant amount of generating capacity and it's deliberately designed to target those evening peaks when You you basically get these huge spikes when, uh, let's say, the gas players are doing whatever they do in the market and there is no wind and there is no solar and demand has shot up. So that's precisely when this plant will come to the fore and it won't be bidding $14,000.
1: No, but I think you can't ignore the political aspects of it either. I mean, the fact is this this concessional equity, and I still don't know what that is. I mean, I understand what a concessional loan is, but it's concessional equity. Do you have to pay it back or do you just pay 2% and then just write it off after 20 years? But never mind that. The point about that is Xenophon got that out of the federal government, and there's a lot of marginal seats in South Australia. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm fully in favour of the project, but you have to ask if you pumped hydro or if your batteries, why can't you get a concessional
2: equity loan from the federal government as well for, for, for your technology? The, well, it, my, look, my comment on that is um, you've got to get it where you can. But uh, I, really, if we're to progress in this country, we need to think about the sort of market settings that we apply. And I, I'm in favour of doing things in technology-neutral ways. But what we really need to be doing is designing the rewards for flexible and dispatchable renewable generation in rational ways. Um, one of the things I've often thought in that regard is if, if we have a renewable energy target or a new clean energy target, it shouldn't just give certificates out irrespective of when you generate, but, but rather should favorably give certificates for generation at times of high demand or high price. Uh, and then that's the sort of thing that could cause a pipeline of projects to actually be done simply by the market. And pumped hydro, solar thermal, biomass, be what it may, let's just bring yeah, it on. Yeah,
1: I, I couldn't agree more. And that's what, one of the many reasons why I've liked uh, reverse auctions. It's because they uh, which it, this effectively was, in a sense, is because they enable you to, the, the, the government to target what it actually needs rather than just... I mean, the whole thing about South Australian high renewables is the renewable energy target doesn't care when the electricity is produced and doesn't care where it's produced. You get the same price for certificate if it's in, in New South Wales or Queensland where you might need it. Um, and it's because it's a big wind resource in South Australia, we get all the projects um, there producing at the same time and causing a problem.
2: Yeah, and the ultimate for a proof of perversity is if the the wind generation receiving its certificates ends up driving the wholesale price negative at times.
0: Well, that's what's interesting about this new contract. It seems to be specifically designed to avoid both um, two things one to minimize those big pr- uh, peaking price events when sort of you know almost sort of on reflex goes up to fourteen thousand dollars a megawatt hour because the gas plants um have so much power and um also to minimize the times when the price goes to negative um something or other because um that's what the wind um power does so it seems to sort of um have been specifically designed to um to sort of moderate in between those two so it's going to be fascinating to see um to see how that works out. Keith, what's the potential then for solar thermal in this country? I mean, if we get one plant built and it works, I know Solar Reserve has talked about another five plants in South Australia, which seems to me rather a lot, but I mean, where else could we see them?
2: Well, look, anywhere, I mean, if we think about the NEM, anywhere almost in the sunny parts of the NEM, so Queensland, Western New South Wales, even Northern Victoria, they're very well suited. And of course they could do some in Western Australia and the Northern Territory as well. maybe the best precedent is to to go look back at the history of what they did in spain where they came in in about 2006 with a what was an extremely generous feed-in tariff policy and maybe that's not the right mechanism but they managed to get 2.3 gigawatts built in the years 2007 to 2013 so they were they were running you know, when it was going well as an industry, it really showed a exponential growth trajectory, and they managed compound growth in excess of 40% per annum. Um, and the only thing that stopped it is that they had a change of government and financial difficulties swing to the right, and they just removed the feed-in tariff overnight. But if we in Australia put in, you know, sensible policies, it's entirely realistic to replicate that 40% per annum compound growth following on the first plant or two.
0: Mm, interesting. Okay. Well,
2: look, guys, um,
0: I'm, I'm, you know, what, I'm sorry, I've got one other question. Um, competing technologies, I mean, Solar Reserve, Um. have we got any other um competing companies um in this space in Australia?
1: Yes, we do. We've got a little, uh, uh, very small company in here in New South Wales, uh, Vast Solar, uh, that has an innovative uh, policy that was talked about briefly at the Arena Conference uh, down in Canberra last week. That uh, wants to use sodium rather than molten molten salt as its as its fluid. Uh, they claim the advantage of this is that it enables much smaller uh, plants to be built. Um, you, one of the difficulties with the um, uh, solar reserve technologies i understand it is these giant mirrors all have to focus on this uh, tower of power from a couple of kilometers away to very very close distances and you can do it but there's an awful lot of mirrors that have to be lined up to within you know half a degree or less of accuracy so it's not without its technical challenges anyway we have we have got some competing technologies
2: yeah and i think a really important point to emphasize is that CSP like wind like pv is a global industry if we ran a reverse option for something or, or, or had incentives, there would be multi, you know, at least half a dozen major experienced consortia bidding for things. And then, of course, we've got the whole interesting aspect of bringing up our own local content. So we certainly aspire to manufacture parts of things here. And then and then, overlaid on that is the smaller, more innovative let's say start-up companies with new technological approaches, and we've got several, including Vast Solar in Australia, but they're also in other countries as well. So they, they represent the sort of, you know, the next generation that must come along, um, as, it, as it should. Um, so, so, yeah, quite an ecosystem that's there to be nurtured. David, um, given
0: this, and we'll wrap it up pretty soon. Um, given this, all sort of technology is coming through. Um, really, can you see any market for new coal or gas plants in Australia?
1: Ah, oh, well, um, you can't rule out gas uh, completely. If gas prices were low enough, there'd be a market. And predicting gas prices is. Is, is a fool's business, like predicting oil prices, like predicting electricity prices. So you can't say the gas price will stay high forever. It could come down. I personally uh, don't favour new gas, of course, and I don't think the economics favour new coal. But you know what? As just as costs come down in concentrating solar every time you new, built a new plant, if, you, if, we, if we did, God forbid we ever did, but if we did five new coal plants in a row, the costs would come down for those just as fast too, because all these industries still have a learning curve.
0: Yes, um, I think there's some other issues with coal though as well about emissions and things like that. So.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I'm not. You, you, you're, you're, you just ask me as an analyst, you know, without putting any ideology on it. But I, no one will build. No, it's it called science,
0: David. It's science. Uh,
1: there's going to be a There's going to be the, the carbon risk. Uh, I think is is quite prohibitive uh, to, to people wanting to build coal, and I don't know whether it would stop people, people building gas, but I'm. Um, uh, we don't see many signs. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we do, you see. There's AGL planning to import uh, 100 petajoules of gas. That won't just be for heating gas, process gas. That'll be some of it for electricity generation. We see AGL doing $250 million of investment at Silver Springs. That's gas storage in Queensland. Uh, so people are investing money in gas.
0: Yes, I think probably um, because AGL's got some gas plants which it wants to continue running um, for a while. Um, Anyway, look, that's probably for another day. Look, um, thanks very much, guys. Um,
1: And and sorry, just to finish there, Giles, AGL is building a gas reciprocating engine plant in South Australia.
0: Absolutely, to replace the one that's just about to close.
1: So when you ask me, can you build new ones, the answer is yes.
0: Yes, indeed. It's interesting the way they've actually structured that, though. Um, Five or six different units, so it doesn't have to sort of run um, a couple of big units. So um, that's going to be interesting. Hey, guys, I'm going to have to wrap up there. Um, Keith, thanks very much for joining yes. us today.
2: Thanks, Giles. My pleasure.
0: Yeah, and David, once again, thank you very much. Um, same time
1: next week. Giles, if it's as interesting uh, every week as it has been for the last couple of weeks, I'll be looking forward to it muchly.
0: Excellent. And look, thanks again, and once again, to our sponsor, Solar Ray. Thanks to all our listeners. And I hope you enjoy this podcast, and we'll be back next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV,
2: storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.